Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's talk the Munster years. When did rugby become your number one sport? Because I know you were sports mad. The Tipperary Hurlers were on your radar as well at, at one stage. Yeah, I think uh, growing up I, was, I, I played soccer, I played hurling, Gaelic football, rugby, tennis. What, what were you best at? Um, well, I thought I was best at hurling <laughs> um, and I wanted to play hurling for Tipperary when I was young. Um, Nicky English taught me in school secondary school he lived quite close to me at home does he think you could have made it uh, i doubt it i think he'd laugh at that now <laughs> um no i was i was very close to being being part of uh, the under 14 tipperary hurling team that went to the tony forrestal tournament in in waterford and was rugby big in your world then were you watching the irish internationals were you i was yeah yeah no yeah. rugby was the the, the the old five nations was always big uh, in our house and i played rugby all right from very young age so I was probably three or four sports that just continuously played, but rugby was always there because my dad and my uncles played rugby and were involved with the local club in Clan William and Tipperary. So uh, there was a period before it all got very, very serious and became professional when you were juggling Clan William and Shannon as well. And it's mad to say it, but it wouldn't be unknown for you to play three matches in a weekend, two on one day, one the next day. I don't know, like you, you must be in bits. I just took it kind of block by block, match by match, that two games on a Saturday was, was fine. Um, there was no such thing as player welfare then. And, you know, I often scored two tries for, for the under-20s and scored another try for Shannon and scored another try or two on Sunday for Clan William. And Sunday evening then I'd be having a few, a few drinks and looking back at the weekend saying it was great and that they all went pretty well. And, you know, you didn't always win them. And it didn't happen every weekend, but most weekends it was two games. You know, it was a Saturday-Sunday scenario and um, they were all as important as each other. As uh, You know, Clan Williams game was massive on a mm -hmm. Sunday. The Shannon game was big for me because I was trying to make my name there. If it was with the 20s, whatever, they were all big games. And um, I enjoyed them and didn't really know any different. And that's just the way it was. Would you have been happy enough to be a mechanic the rest of your days? Yeah, I think um, I, I loved it. I think when I finished school, um, I did my leave insert on Friday and I started an apprenticeship on Monday. I knew in 1997, obviously rugby went professional after the World Cup in 95, and I knew in 97 it was kind of, there was going to be um, 20 to 30 contracts in Munster. And I was playing with Shannon through that period and, you know, I was being touted as getting involved with Munster. And so I gave up my job six months before the summer of 97, I gave it up December 19, 1996, I gave up my job, everyone said you're crazy, you're giving up your job, um, going into the unknown, who knows anything about professional rugby, but I kind of backed myself and I remember talking to my mum and dad and they were very relaxed with it because I qualified as a mechanic at that stage and in fairness, the boss man at the time 
maybe he wanted to get rid of me anyway. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but he said to me, look, if it doesn't work out, he loved his rugby too, Jerry Pierce and Arthur Pierce. They were two, two brothers. Arthur was a famous golfer. And they said to me, look, if it doesn't work out, you can come back. So I went selling, uh, in that period, I went, um, you know, my mum would give me the car. I'd drive into Shannon uh, a couple of times a week, play a game with them at the weekend. They would give me travelling expenses. And uh, then I was selling a lot of tickets for the rugby club. And then I was getting my stamps. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was getting probably 100, 100 150 quid a week mm. uh, for, as a full-time trainer, probably a, as much as I was as uh, my wages as a mechanic. So, and I, wasn't, I felt I wasn't losing anything and I was giving myself a chance mm. to prepare for those first contracts and, and train full-time and play really well for Shannon and, and grab the attention of, of, of Munster. I signed a, a part-time contract that summer which was seven and a half thousand pounds at the time and match fees. And it was more, if I get, I, I, I looked at all the Munster games, I said, if I get X number of games, I'll get to 12, 14 grand a year, which was more than what I was going to get as a mechanic. So it's not a big, a big deal for me here to do this. And I'm getting a great opportunity. And uh, so that's the way it kind of started out. And um, this is a time where like the, prov the provincial system as we know it now is quite new, you know, games every week and that this is the team now, you know, it's not your, cl your clubs are um, drifting out to see a touch in terms of your priorities. Where it probably struck a lot of people that Munster had something very special going on was in that 99-2000 season where you reach your first Heineken Cup yeah. final, you beat Toulouse in the semi-final away and thousands travel. You know, it's almost the first time that actually there's something yeah. a bit special going on here. So. The, the, those those early memories, that period where you realise what Munster is becoming, must have been unbelievably exciting. Yeah, it was unbelievably exciting. I think it was. There's there's some contrast from the the start of that that season to the end, where we're in Twickenham, we lose the final against Northampton, and you know there's forty thousand Munster people there. You go right back to I think it was round two where we played around two or three where we played Saracens over in Vicarage Road. And we probably had 20 supporters there. Right. And so that's, were, that's the season where it blows up then, is it? Yeah, we were, and most of them were the parents. Yeah. Um, the game was, and it was a Sunday evening against Saracens over in Vicarage Road. It wasn't on TV. Um, Lyndon Ean was, was doing it in Limerick 95, Limerick Live 95. And um, I remember thinking, you know, we won that game. We came back incredibly against Saracens in Vicarage Road. And that was the start of something special as regards we can do better than just beat a big team in Thoman Park. We can now go on the road and, you know, we won for the first time that year in France. Um, and we started to achieve things that we won the Interpros mm. and, and it kind of brought us right up to that semi-final where you, you know, this quarter-final Stade Francais at home, the semi-final against Toulouse where we had these guys up on a pedestal that there was littered with French internationals. They were... They looked bigger, they looked stronger, they looked fitter. Um, and we were, we were, nobody really gave us a chance there. And, and winning that semi-final in Bordeaux was just incredible. And that was the start of maybe the fans going, this is, this is something we want to be part of. Mm. Because it was a very precarious time, Joe, with the club scene and provincial team, particularly in Limerick. You know, we had, when I played with Shannon, we had eight, ten thousand 10,000 people at, at every home game. It was, the Limerick derbies were ferocious great atmospheres going to Greenfields or to Gary Owen, to Dordyle. And suddenly 
you know, Shannon probably had 10 or 12 guys in the Munster team and we were all internationals as well and you go into the clubhouse and Shannon and all our jerseys are around the wall. They're incredibly proud of their international players and in a year or two we're gone. We mm. can't play with the club. So it was a precarious time and position and there was a bit of a divide there where do we, you know, Munster are playing nearly every week now and uh, what about the club? And, and it affected the clubs, definitely. But that was the start of something really special and, and we started to, to believe in that as yeah. well. At uh, the final in 2000, Rog misses five kicks, he's 0 for 5. I don't know, had G2 overcome your differences at that stage, the early tension? Oh, we but, had, uh, yeah, yeah, that, we had. Your memory, so you said that often, you know, through your career, you would turn to him. That must have been devastating for him. I don't know, did he need some support from you guys then? Yeah, he was pretty resilient and um, a lot of mental strength. You know, Rog was never the biggest physical specimen of a man um, that, that played rugby. And I think most opposition teams tried to target him because of his physical size. But mental toughness and, and mental strength um, was, was a big plus for him. So he wasn't broken after that. He was very disappointed for sure. But, and, um, you know, I would have had a conversation, you know, but I, he, did, he probably didn't need the same attention if, <laughs> that I would have needed yes. if it was me. Okay. Um, which is a sign of his strength. So I think he put it behind him, like, and, and you know, he got loads of kicks before that and after that that, that people didn't expect him to get. But mm. you have days like that as a kicker, and it could have been different if he got those kicks. Munster came back again. They got to the final in 2002. We have the footage here of the infamous moment where Neil Back's hand does his thing. So second to final defeat in three years. This is getting a little bit painful and a bit too much of a habit for you lot. Yeah, and that, that was a game where, like, obviously there's, there's loads of English internationals, big names, Johnson, Back, Moody, Austin Healy, all these guys, uh, seasoned internationals, and um, Martin Corrie, and this was the Neil Back incident, which I was on the other side of the scrum and uh, didn't really realise it happened so yeah. quickly, and we had David Wallace in at number eight, and we were going to launch him off the back of the scrum, and he was incredibly quick, Wally, and... It was a great chance for us. If we scored there, we could have won the game. I think it was 15-9 at that stage, and we needed to score a try. And but you know, I think we. I, for me personally, I didn't dwell on it too much afterwards and go, "Well, he cost us yeah. a European Cup because um, they were an incredibly strong team." And we knew going into that final, we had to stop their forwards. And as a pack of forwards from Munster, we had to stop them. They destroyed a lot of teams that campaign with their maul and their strength and power up front. And we did that pretty well. We made a couple of mistakes in the game. For their first try, we lost the line out, which um, always kind of irks me. And, um, you know, Austin Healy slipped between Rog and Jason Holland for, for, for the try that he scored. So we did so many things right in that game and, and just their bit of experience and quality told in the end and we just came up short again which was disappointing but I never looked at Neil back and said you cost the European Cup with any no um, and I don't think he did but it still it still was wrong what he did but I probably thought to myself I'd do the same thing myself I'm sure you would so the other thing to kind of state even for younger viewers is there's a kind of magic now about Munster in the Heineken Cup you've reached two finals 
Uh, you're, you're against the, you know, trips to France, trips to England. Irish rugby starting to blossom again. Golden generation are in off the back of a bad decade in the 90s. The possibilities are starting to grow. And then, you know, 2003, the miracle match, for instance, we have some footage here of the scenes. And it'll give people an idea of the sort of romanticism that was in the air and the magic in the air. And look at Thoman Park there. So there were, there were mad things happening. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And I think... Um it, that whole journey and that togetherness um, was obviously very important to us, but it was also important to the people who supported Munster and who really bought into this journey and these wonderful days in Thoman Park and, and games on the road. Um, and this day Dunnock was... is happy there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jim Williams joins in with him there, but it was, that was a special day. That's one, that, of course, that stands out because we'd lost... Gloucester had hammered us in round one and then we lost to Perpignan the week before this game and... Effectively, we we won three, lost two, and we had to win this one to have any chance. And we didn't really realise the permutations beforehand that it was 27 points. And I think we were as shocked as, as some of the people on <laughs> the sideline. But I remember Gallov the night before the, he he gave us a speech in in in, in the hotel, and and he was crying, and it really kind of hit home to us the 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 position we were in to be able to put on the Munster jersey and play in this iconic venue for this club. And, you know, he was, he was phenomenal. Um, there was a lot of talk about game plans and stuff like that. But Golov really kind of made us feel like that we had a responsibility to go out and produce a performance that day. Not just win the game, but produce a performance full yeah. of pride and passion. It's funny you say he was crying and emotional because one of the things we hear about the first final in 2000 is that you all got a bit too emotional the night before. You know, talked about what Munster meant to you all and there's tears and maybe there's a flatness the next day as a result. Who knows? You may still have yeah, lost the game. People look back at it's... that, Joe, and they think, you know, it was, it was questioned were we too emotional. Yeah. I think we were beaten by a better team. Okay. Just small margins on the day. It was our first final. Of course, we may, might have froze a little bit, but... I don't think it was that to do with the emotion. tears in the dressing room the night or okay. in the hotel the I was night before. Say I'm, but I'm, I'm you surprised, never know. Because I was going to say, I'm surprised you're still two, three years on, still in tears the night but before. But Gallivan's ability to cry and inspire rather than make you emotional. And he was an incredible captain. Yeah. Um, and like I say, he was a spiritual leader for so many of us. You remember the picture, the Irish picture with Rog and Stringer at either side. He just, Gallivan gave you a comfort that... It'll be all fine, it'll be right. great on the day and, and just make sure that you, you, you deliver with passion and pride and mm -hmm. give it everything. And he just had a really brilliant ability to do that. Because I do, I do remember this period and this team as an emotional team, like in touch with the passion, tears, you know, so you and could probably, see that Probably that was a bit of a chip on our shoulders oh, as well. listen, uh, you know, nothing surer. Backs to the wall stuff and we love that. We love the fact and... And Axel used to always um, talk about um, having a chip on our shoulder and in a good way. That, And a lot of teams probably didn't rate us. I remember talking to French guys since I've retired saying, you know, they couldn't figure out this monster phenomenon, why we could go and, you know, produce these kind of performances and what was special. It was something different because I think if you took the 15 players that took the field at any stage, we always knew we were, weren't as talented as some of the bigger teams mm. with the bigger budgets. But we felt if we played together that we could break them. We could break the opposition with a relentless kind of drive, um, 
and ability to hold on to the ball and just putting pressure on the opposition, we were probably a nightmare to play against yeah. because we were probably in your face all the time and just upsetting the opposition from playing and going after the out half who was can win a game or lose a game for you, that kind of a scenario. Mm -hmm. So I think we were a nuisance probably to play against. Uh, some new faces start coming through, you know, Paul O'Connell, we saw Dunnock O'Callaghan there. It culminates in 06 and 08, <coughs> two Heineken Cups in three years, phenomenal achievement. Injury costs you 06 a bit, but you do get on for the final. And then 2008, we have footage here of even the celebrations and just the, the, the sense of dominance, I think. Um, you got man of the match in 08 in this final, so that must be incredibly satisfying for you. Yeah, I think the most important thing for me, and I know people say this after they get the man of the match situation, I wasn't the best Munster player in the field that day, um, but I, di I did fine, I played okay. But the most important thing for me was, in, in obviously in 06, I'd, I had the injury in, in, at the start of that year, and I got back for three or four minutes at the end of the 06 final. I was the happiest sub mm. ever. But this was, this was me feeling I, 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 you know, I played throughout the whole campaign, I performed really well in a lot of the games. And this was in the back of the 07 World Cup. Yeah. So this was this was the fitness, the conditioning that I put in enabled me to do that. So, you know, I was back here in my own head and here I was, I played an important part right throughout the campaign and right right up to that final. So it was, it was really special. 06 was getting back from my knee and like I said, they were both really, really special. I was the happiest sub ever in 06, and this was me playing a full part. I just was trying to take it all in, really. I, I couldn't believe that, because I thought of 06, oh God, I, I, it's a pity. I'm here and it's great, and I've missed, I've played in loads of the other finals and the semi-finals and loads of disappointments, but I have the medal now in 06, but 08, I've, I've contributed right the way through, and I've played, you know, I've, put in some great performances as well, which was really satisfying and yeah. gratifying at the end. It can't get much sweeter, really, you know, as the season goes 08 for you, you know, to contribute that way and for it to finish the way it finished. And I would say, actually, not to be unfair to the 06 team, but 08, that team played some great rugby. I mean, Dougie Howlett's suddenly part of this back line and there's some brilliant tries scored across that season. So it's satisfying, it's ticking a lot of boxes. Yeah, Maffey to poke here there as well. Yeah. And they give you a different dimension. Um, you know, you put Sean Payne and Trevor Halstead in the 06 team and we were probably more of a direct team there. Halstead, Trevor Halstead was just phenomenal. Um, you know, John Kelly played at outside centre in that final. He was brilliant. And, you know, so we probably didn't have the same cutting edge as 08. But you need to get better. We learned that in 07 when we lost the quarterfinal away to the Scarlets. We were European champions. We were out of Europe in the quarterfinals. Mm. We had a big sit down at the start of that season and we had to raise our standards again. I struggle to think of many teams who had the bond that your team had and the extent to which that bond has survived. We're talking genuine friendships here. And maybe it's because a lot of you are all from the same neck of the woods. Maybe it's because you created this thing almost out of nothing from the late 90s on. And I know even your parents are part of this as well. Like you mentioned, one of those early trips to Saracens on a Sunday night. It's basically just your parents in the crowd. Like, so you have your thing going on as a group and even the parents yeah. formed a little bit of a cabal as well. Yeah, and that was lovely for us as players um, that our parents uh, enjoyed these trips. And, you know, some of the trips to south of France, you know, another game we played Saracens at half seven on a Saturday night in, in not on TV anywhere. 
um, in the south of France. Um, we played Cast, I should say, and um, I remember that one as well, but they're, they're on the charter plane with us, so the players are the front of the plane and there's 25 or 30 parents at the back of the plane. So and you'd know all the parents, would you? Yeah, we got to know them over the years and should it, they'd be on the same plane and our parents became very close. I think the whole bond um, revolves around it being unique, Joe, because there's so many brilliant monster players that played ever before any of us. Mm. There's so many guys who didn't get to play in that 06 or 08 final that were very much part of it in our minds. Like Claude didn't get to play in, in the final, or Golov, Killian Keane, um, you know, Jim Williams, these guys who came in, John Langford, Woody came in 99, 2000. So many players before us, and guys who were squad players and incredibly important as well. And you look at the history of Munster going back to beating the All Blacks, beating Australia, so many wonderful players. We knew that responsibility because we got that from Claw and Golov and people who came in and spoke to us over the years. So we were kind of representing them all, but our story was a bit unique because Rugby went professional, European Cup came into play, um, and this whole journey started, so it was new. Mm. It was new, and I think we learned and, got, and grew together as, we, you know, we got all together as well. Yeah. And Would the parents have stayed in touch? Absolutely, you know, my, my mum and dad um, would have been great friends with, with everyone. My dad has passed, passed away last year now, and they were very, very close, and all the parents become very, very close to the point that they still go to games, and they still, they still stay in touch with it or still organise trips and they still go to the games and my mum loves doing that and and that was very special and when my dad passed away it was incredible because not alone were my teammates coming in but the parents were as well and that that's what makes it special you know and and it, it's a very difficult situation um, because you know I was very very close to my dad and you know someone asked me recently are you over that and I, I didn't know how to answer it because it's something, it's something, you know, I can never get over. I think as well when Anthony Foley passed away, we got a glimpse of the closeness of the team when part of the morning was quite public. And you could see this was not just, you know, a team coming back to remember a teammate. This was family, you know, and, and you know, I think even listening to you the last couple of minutes, I have a deeper understanding of why that was. Yeah, I remember... Um, I remember going in playing under 20s with, with Shannon and looking at Anthony Foley and thinking, he's massive. This is this famous schools player who's achieved so much. I'm this skinny guy coming in from Tipperary and I'm standing beside him and just being in awe of him. Mm. And then just playing alongside him in the under 20s back row for Shannon. Brent, Brendan was our coach with Shannon and we went and won the Munster League, the Limerick League and the Limerick Cup that year, the three cups that you could win at under 20s. And that was the first kind of, um, you know, involvement I had with, with, with Anthony and, and, and obviously playing with him for so long, playing with Shannon, Munster and Ireland. And then when that happened, obviously, um, it, was, it, was, it was shocking, really. Mm. Uh, to this day, it still, still feels the same. And... Um, I think there was comfort in the fact that we could all come together and, you know, we spent that night, the night he was buried in, in, in Killaloo in the hotel and um, the conversations, the stories uh, were comforting for everybody. Yeah. I think they were comforting for, for Brendan and Sheila and for, for Olive and Rosie 
and Orla as well. Um, but people still couldn't get their head around it, you know. It was it had a profound effect on everyone that this is not right, you know, this shouldn't happen. And I know lots of people maybe watch this and, and have been affected with losing loved ones and losing their own children, which is incredibly difficult. And that's why, you know, I always say that about my dad, and I said it at the funeral, at his funeral, that you can't give out to the man above if you if when you if your parents or if you as an individual get into your 80s and you've had a fair crack at it and unfortunately that didn't happen for anthony and it's the same for lots of people who are like that so sometimes it makes no sense and there was no sense to that whole situation but there was a little bit of comfort there that people loved him so much and cared for him so much and cared for the family um, you know, my mum would still talk to Sheila and Brendan a lot, and um, it's it's an incredibly difficult situation uh, for Olive mm. and for for the family with what happened to Anthony, and and we we don't ever forget him. We often have have the, have conversations about him, and um, it was just madness what happened. Mm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Two thousand and nine. It should have been a real bonus year for you as a thirty-four year old going on the Lions tour to South Africa. Eight Munster players picked. You know, it was extraordinary. There were a whole bunch of Irish. I mean that was an Irish tour in many ways. Ireland had won the Grand Slam, Leinster and Munster were uh, playing in a Heineken semi-final as well, Heineken Cup semi-final as we'll come to. And you were almost one of those kind of, geez, what a lovely story at 34 years of age. You know, he hasn't played for Ireland this calendar year and he's been picked for the Lions because he's been in good form and he'll be a good tourist and all the reasons I'm sure uh, that the, the coaches had. And we know you don't go and we know this had a profound effect on you. So Heineken Cup semi-final is, is the moment. Would you call it a moment of madness, moment of... What? Um, I don't know if I'd call it a moment of madness because um, I, I've said this probably a good few times, there was no conscious decision in my mind. Um, it looks terrible in slow motion for sure, um, but there was no conscious decision in my mind to go, I'm going to try and gouge someone here. Um, Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember it because I remember that Paul had the ball and, and Leo had him around the neck and I was trying to grab Leo by the jersey and... and, and pull him back upwards because I had lifted Paul in the line out and um, yeah I knew I knew that I'd made contact with his face but that's why I say it's not it wasn't 
Because it looks bad in slow motion. Yeah, I would look at it in slow motion and I couldn't say for sure you're trying to gouge somebody. That's a big accusation. But it looks like, well, I know his face is there and I know where my hand is and I'll give it a rub somewhere. Well, i tell you what went through my head and, and, and trying to explain it is difficult. I, I tried to grab him by the jersey and lift him backwards mm. uh, and pull him ba Leo back upwards and that didn't happen my hand went across his face and and in slow motion it's like it looks like it's five seconds but mm. it was 0.4 of a second the reason I know this is because I was clutching at straws trying to defend myself and we got um, a company in England to kind of break down the the video and, and, and time how long it was and how quick my hand went across his face mm. um, and you know, Sky showed it a number of times in replays and I didn't realise that until I came off the field and George Murray, our video analyst, said, look, Sky, after showing this, it's, it's, you may have a problem here. And he showed it to me um, two minutes after we went in off the field. And even though I had that kind of dreaded feeling in my stomach that some, it may be picked up, I was convinced and that's it, my Lions tour is over. Right from that moment, yeah. I was convinced that's over because I, I can't, they won't understand what was going through my head here and I didn't mean this and I didn't mean to do it to, to him. And, you know, I said that, you know, peop, one of the things that went against me in the hearing was, well, why did you go up and apologise to, to Leo? I, it's funny, I was just about to say that to you. I was about to say, well, even clearly before you heard from the backroom yeah. uh, staff member that Sky Sports had shown this a lot, and they had shown it a lot, it's clear you, you went up to Leo Cullen to say either, I didn't mean it, it's an accident, sorry, are we all good? So that would suggest a feeling of guilt on your part even before yeah. you'd seen it. Well, when, when, when my hand come across his face and came across his eye, um, he kind of swatted my hand away and shouted up at me. And, I, and literally at that moment, I said, look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that, we end up running away. Okay. So I wanted to kind of make sure the game is lost for us. Mm. Um, they won um, and the disappointment of that is, is big in, in itself but I just wanted to say look we've Leo and myself would have clashed a few times over the years we actually got on really well because yeah. we played a lot of games for the Ireland A team together and we had fun we had crack nights out and we were in a lot of Irish squads and we were quite similar in a sense that we were periphery players for Ireland for a number, a number of years yeah. um, so we would have been the bag holders and we would have had a bit of crack and fun and and um, so I just wanted to say, look, I, that was an accident. I didn't mean to do that. It wasn't my intention. Mm. And um, he laughed it off. I think if you see the end of that, he's, he, he accepted that straight away. So then I went into the dressing room and George said that to me. And I knew straight away. I said, look, if it's, you know, if it's played over a number of times in the sky, it'll be picked up. I'm a controversial pick for the Lions anyway because, um, you know, I don't think the English media w were best pleased Tom Croft was was an England international. He, I was picked ahead of him, um, and I was I was a kind of a left field selection, really, based on on that quarter final for Munster against Ospreys in Thomond Park. Because I sat sat in the stand throughout the Six Nations. I was with Ireland throughout that whole Grand Slam campaign, and and. You know, you've got to play in the Six Nations, in my opinion, to be picked in the lines. And I, 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 a few times I kind of went, oh, God, particularly over in Murrayfield, Ireland played Scotland. I'm sitting in the stand, McGeekin, Ian McGeekin and Warren Gatlin are behind me to watch the game, mm. to see how, how they play. And I thought, God, if I was on the field, yeah. maybe they'd be watching me. And then I said, no, that's not me. So on the train home, I know you've spoken about how <laughs> there's a numbness setting in because 
you know, the lads are having a few drinks and getting over the defeat to Leinster, but you're realising there's a good chance my Lions tour is over here. News comes through, 12-week ban, tour gone, this amazing thing, you know, uh, like you talk about dreaming to play for Ireland. To play for the Lions is just different level and it's such a great tour, the yeah. South African tour, even in hindsight it's looked back on as one of the great tours to have been on. That's all taken from you. I mean, you really spiral here. This isn't, oh yeah, no, it was disappointing and sure, look, I, I went away for a few weeks and I got on with it. This is like culminating that year and having to get professional help, level of disappointment. Yeah, I think um, I mentioned the highs and lows at the start of, of being a professional athlete and, and, and winning and losing and all that stuff. And it's all part of, of sport for any kid. You know, you're disappointed when you lose, you're delighted when you win. That doesn't change all the way up. Obviously, the consequences and the severity and the, the magnitude of matches changes in the tournaments you play in. And when you're getting paid to play a sport, it's, there's more pressure. Um, I just felt at the end of my career, coming towards the end of my career, this was a reward for probably some of the perseverance and the setbacks and the knocks that I had taken. And, the determination and the discipline I'd shown off the field to get back and recover and get myself fit again and get myself going and motivated. And this is it. Good things happen when you keep yeah. digging in there. And, and then it's gone. And I feel it's self-inflicted because it's my actions that's taken it away. And I think that's why I spiraled to the level I did mm. because, you know, Tomas got injured and missed a tour, Tomas O'Leary, Jerry Flannery missed a tour, got injured. And I, I looked at their situation and I said, well, that's bad luck. They can accept it. They're just really unlucky. Whereas I blamed myself mm. so much more. And I was angry with myself and I was feeling, why does this have to happen to me again? Mm. Why do I have to feel this bad over something again? It's easier not to be on the stage than be on the stage and put yourself in a potential position like that. So am I better off just giving up rugby now and never doing this again because it's too risky? I can't feel like this. I can't. I don't want to be this high, this low. And this was a low that I'd never experienced. Um, you know, obviously everybody has ups and downs in life and you have diff disappointments and setbacks with all parts of life. And that's part of, that's, You've got to deal with that. But I felt that this was kind of self-inflicted. And maybe it was the negativity that was a bit of negativity that was in me that I, I, I had this jubilation for a couple of weeks and I felt I let myself go and let myself be free that life is wonderful. It can be wonderful. And now it's gone. It's different. And this is just more than a match. This is just more than a Lions tour. This is... This is the way it's supposed to be. I convinced myself that it's, it's just something good will happen and then it'll be bad. And that, had, that was the most frustrating and, uh, situation for me. And I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. So I, I kind of, I didn't really show any emotion. Um, my son was only a couple of months old and he gave me good strength. And my wife at the time um, helped me a lot and she had to live with that. Mm. And... I had a little boy and I'd go off walking in the buggy with him and I'd look in at him and think, that's the bit of strength that I need. He, he's going to keep me going and, and I have to get strong again. Because, you know, when you have a disappointment, Joe, you, of course you feel sad. Everyone experiences mm. disappointments. But 
It's probably the magnitude of how you catastrophize them in your own head, mm. if that makes sense, mm. that this was the end of the world. Like, I said, how am I going to come back from this? How, how can I go and do this level of fitness again? Where's my motivation going to come from? I've just destroyed something that was, could have been so wonderful mm. for me. Mm. Um, I was envious going home on the train that night. I looked at my teammates who were disappointed in losing a massive game. I wanted, I, I, I was craving to be at their level of disappointment, not at my level of disappointment, which was through the floor. They even, a bit of a sing-song started on the, on the train. They were having a few drinks and that's, you just gotta get on with life when, when it's sport and there's no blame game in that. We just, better team beat us in the day, we underperform, whatever way you wanna look at it. But I wanted to jump out of that train. I, I, I didn't wanna be alive. Mm. I just, I didn't want to be alive at that moment. Cause I said, I cannot deal with this. Um, and I didn't mean it. I didn't intentionally do this, but I blame myself for the action, which was, it was really reckless. When does it get to a point where you even say, actually, I, I'm so not snapping out of this, I need to go and talk to someone about yeah. it? Well, I, I, I went to, um, I went to my doctor, which, you know, Mick Shinkwin, who would have, who would have been, um, who would have been, uh, you know, our doctor for, for, for a number of years and had the conversations with him and, and tried to, try to understand why I'm not getting better and that it was pretty serious. I couldn't sleep, I had no motivation. And, and, and then JP O'Donoghue, the other doctor with Munster as well, I had conversations with, with both of them and, and they helped. And I think they realized that there was something serious going on here. It wasn't just, he'll get over this. Mm -hmm. So I needed some intervention. I needed to talk to someone about it. And it wasn't just, a, it was, it was everything that was getting in on top of me and, and I found that motivation was hard to come by again, you know, because it was such a big thing for me, you know, when you, when you work so hard and put so much time and effort and sacrifice into to being the best you can be, none of us do, some, do it at all perfect, you know, and I just found it hard to, to get any motivation to do anything again. And um, so I needed some help and intervention and, and gradually I started to rebuild myself a little bit again and, and, and I suppose speak about that trauma, frustration, mm. that negative voice that probably has always been there, that anxiety, the maybe suffering a bit with depression um, and understand myself a lot better and, and, and stop blaming myself really that it felt like the end of the world, but it wasn't the end of the world. Yes. And, I, and you know, that's the hard thing to, to articulate to people at the time. And I felt if I talk about this, well, people would say, just get on with it and you'll be fine. And you'll... But that wasn't gonna work. You know, I had to go deeper and find out how can I show emotion with this? How can I let it bleed if you like? and then try and let it heal. And, you know, so there was a process there and it took a long time and we went, uh, Ruth and myself and AJ, our son was only, you know, six months at that time and all my friends were planning to go to South Africa. They were all booked in. They told their wives that they had to go. They were blaming me. They thought they have to go to South Africa. <laughs> He's picked in this tour. There was a, 
you know, in, in, in the local pub in, in where I live in, lived in Castle Troy, there was, um, we had a, the night it was announced, um, they had uh, a bit of a get together there and all the lads had to ring their, their wives and stuff and say they have to go to South Africa and that was all gone. And, but um, my cousin got married in, in, in Las Vegas and, um, you know, obviously I told him I couldn't go because the lines was on, he knew. And uh, that all changed then where, you know, we decided I'd, I would go to, to um, go to the wedding and that was great for a week to go there and we brought the little fella as well and my mum came as well and she she was babysitting in, in, in Las Vegas for a week for us and we had a great time and uh, it, it, it got rid of the... Yeah. It, it helped, but then it came back pretty much straight away when I came home and reality hit again. So it took a long time. I, I would still say I'll, I would say I'll never be over it. I'll never be over the disappointment to that. And again, it's not looking for any sort of sympathy for people, but it was a big moment, you know, was you're either a British and Irish lion or you're not. No, it's a big loss. Um, and, and not to over, kind of just park that disappointment, but if there is any silver lining listening to you now and even at various other points over the last decade, it seems that that disappointment and the fallout prompted you to look at some of your thinking habits, the negativity, the anxiety, to address some of them. Um, and you strike me now as someone who uh, worked on yourself, interrogated yourself, and developed as a human being, maybe. And, and, and that 09 disappointment seems to have been uh, one which forced you to do that a little bit. So if there is some silver lining, maybe that's it. Yeah, some people said that, look, some good will come out of it and, and things happen for a reason and stuff. And I found it so hard to go back to, to training that summer. and, and even having the conversation with Tony McGahan, you know, I had to go through through the doctor at the time because I couldn't ha I couldn't talk to him over the phone and I was dreading going back, and I wasn't ready to go back. So it took a couple of weeks to actually go back and and yeah, I suppose I'm I, I always thought I was strong physically, that I could, no matter who stood in front of me in a rugby field, that they wouldn't scare me or frighten me or. Um, if you physically challenged me, no matter who, who you were, I would fight and I would um, be strong and I wasn't scared or afraid. But emotionally, I realised I was weak and it was causing me issues and it has caused me issues and probably still does to this day that, um, that I needed to figure myself out a little bit better. And I suppose everybody kind of emotionally struggles at times and you know has different outlooks in life and um, different challenges that affect them differently and I didn't really have a balance you know and I, I looked at the whole I never wanted to delve into mental health because I didn't want to go there I didn't want to kind of you know I didn't know anything about it um, but when you're at, the, at a point where you feel like your world has ended um, and then you look into a pram and you see a six-month-old boy looking up at you and you think, um, I, I've got to be strong for him, you know? Mm. And, um, and that, that was a big challenge. But, you know, I, I, I was able to kind of process it. I suppose you have to process the, the, the disappointment of that and 
and try and deal with it. And I suppose if you've any problem or challenge in life, the the best way to deal with it is to try and get help or support. But that's the problem around mental health, Joe, I think is, you know, people do kind of bottle up their trauma and their, their strife and and I was probably in the habit of all my life of never never sharing any sort of emotion or worries or fears. And, um, and that's not a good way to be. I've, that's what I've probably learned out of it, that it doesn't mean that you won't get difficulties or challenges in your life, that um, you're, you're, it's just how you deal with them and how you try and find a solution. You may never get the, the perfect reality sometimes reality is is difficult for people in life whether you're playing sport or, or whatever you're doing in your life sometimes people have been and i've met lots of people since i started talking a little bit about mental health that have had really tough situations and tough lives and far worse situations than i ever have you know i count myself blessed that i've had a wonderful life mm. but i think sometimes five or ten percent of negativity can engulf that 90 percent positivity it's very very powerful so i've learned to at least understand that um you know there's there's better ways of dealing with your trauma than than kind of bottling it up and and it's become probably uh easier for people to have conversations nowadays and there's more acceptance that if you do have whatever kind of situation that's been tough in your life or your reality is difficult that there may be a bit of light at the end of the tunnel if you f try and get some help or assistance with something and um you know I, I i get emotional there talking about my my son but and like i said you know um he gave me great strength because i had to kind of get strong again not not just for my son of course for my rest of my family as well and and um you know i'm glad i did it was it was um it was a tough situation because lots of people, I, and I, I, I found there was a sense of shame with it as well because, you know, I did play rough and abrasive at times and I was confrontational and I just didn't want to be defined, this is, this is it, this, I'm going to be, people are just going to say I'm an eye gouger, that's my career. And, and that hurt me more than anything, that this is what, I've, had, I've created this at right towards the end of my career, but, uh, funnily enough, the last two years that I had were probably, they were as enjoyable as, as the ones I w were winning because I got more relaxed and I realised that it wasn't the end of the world mm. and that there's more to life than sport and there's more to life than, you know, there's a lot more to life and there's a lot more brilliant things. But you become very programmed as a professional athlete as well, you know. it's You become selfish, you become hard to live with maybe, you become... Narky, it's 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 relentless at times, and maybe you have to have that relentlessness with it. But for anyone that that would ask me any time um, about it now, about my career, I would say it's it's not the end of the world. You just try and do the best you can in that particular moment, and if you need a bit of help or assistance, um, talk to people and 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 get that out there. Alan Quinn, that's a fine point to finish on. Been nice chatting to you. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure.